Well, Steve, better late than never, man. <laughs> yeah, we had a little, uh, well, yeah, our kid, my daughter started school, um, not you know, school, it's, uh, it's like pre-kindergarten, right? She's four years old, um, but she literally, you know, my wife's uh, been stay at home the last year, so my, my daughter and my son obviously at home, and she, we decided to get her back into school, and within uh, the first three days, she brought home something. We don't know what it is yet, but uh, <laughs> yeah, the kid flew. everybody, the kid flew. Yeah, all the both my son and my daughter were super sick Sunday and and Monday, and uh, and my daughter can't go back to school until we get a COVID test, so we had to go take a test yesterday morning. And yeah, so texted uh, texted you, Mark, and said, "Yeah, Monday minutes out for Monday. It's uh, not yeah. happening this morning." But yeah, yeah. <laughs> Fun stuff. Fun stuff. Yeah. Life of parenting. Yeah. <laughs> so one of the uh, kind of recent developments, if you will, is you kind of, like, kind of finalized some death hike plans, Steve. What the heck are we doing this year? Yeah. Uh, basically, I'm copying last year, man, the snowshoe variation of it that we wanted to do. Um, everyone was really excited about that. The bunch of guys, like, you know, uh, had gotten already purchased their snowshoes and are out doing hikes and, and really just kind of enjoying that new new way to travel the backcountry you know it's really fun on snowshoes uh when the snow conditions are good when they suck it's a lot of work uh but uh yeah we decided to replicate uh, what we were going to do last year before uh covid hit so um yeah we got the date scheduled for april now april 9th uh pretty much everybody that committed last year's in so it's gonna be exciting we're gonna do the same um you know that we're gonna get into small groups and it's essentially just drop people off blindfolded in the dark uh, at a point and tell them uh, you need to make it to this point uh, by Sunday and they'll have three days to do it. Um, and it's going to be like, you know, uh, April. So the, you know, I'm sure the snow line will be, oh, I don't know, somewhere between five and 6,000 feet. But I'd say knowing the the routes that I've already drawn up, the vast majority of it's between six and 9,000 feet in elevation. So you're going to be going over some mountain passes and just kind of, navigating no trails no road systems just trying to get everyone to to point to point b it's yeah. gonna be fun that'd be cool guys will be packing rifles looking for wolves if they want i'm yeah. sure some guys are going to be trying to get a I, I can only imagine some guys like screw these mountain passes i'm going low and looking for elk sheds yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah we'll be going through country where elk winter and wolves should be running around so i'm making everyone uh, if you can't pack a rifle, then you're packing a seven pound rock so that everyone's on oh, a level playing field. Yeah. Um, the, uh, so yeah, it's going to be fun. Hopefully yeah. we kill some wolves, pick up some sheds and everyone, uh, you know, gets a, a good hike and a good challenge in. So yeah, for sure. Cool. Well, we, every time we mention the death hike, we always get the question of how can you join and, uh, we'll repeat what we've said before. You can't, but go do your own, um, you know, just for logistics and liability. There's only so many people we can put together and there's more, uh, demand than supply in terms of participation for the death hike. But just as we've talked about in the podcast and even had listener shows, like you guys hear something like this and you're like, Oh, that sounds awesome. Then go do it. You know, don't wait, grab some buddies, make a plan. Doesn't have to be snowshoe. Doesn't have to be wolf hunt. Come up with whatever you want to do and go, go pick a challenge and make it happen. So yeah, yeah I want to, I want to someday make, make it a public event. I just, uh, you know, that would take some serious leg work to get that off the ground. Um, and the biggest issue is just finding a place to do it. Cause there's so many different places have restrictions on group size and, if, if you go over, you know, 15 people or 20 people, there's permitting and applications and 
Um, but yeah, some, someday we'll figure it out. I don't know if it's two years down the road or five years, but we'll make some kind of event out of it where, you know, you can sign up and come attend. Yeah. Cool. Well, Steve, we were, uh, we were chatting before the show cause you had no idea what we were going to talk about. And I had a few listener questions and then you said you had a surprise for me. So let's get that out oh, of the way. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, I think it was right over Christmas time. I jumped on, uh, jumped on iTunes, um, I think somebody, I don't know what triggered it, but yeah, I jumped on there and was just uh, clipping through reviews uh, of the podcast that guys left. And first, I just want to say thanks to everybody. It's it's really cool and kind of, um, you know, motivational on on our side to, to hear the positive feedback of guys that, you know, um, attribute a lot of like success to a hunt to just listen to the podcast. But one of them was uh, the guy just said, hey, thanks. Uh, I can't remember all the details, but at the end of it basically said, I would love to hear Mark and Steve's favorite hunting memory. So, Mark, you're up. Oh, man. <laughs> What's That's the tough, first one man. that jumps to mind? Yeah. I literally, when you said that, I had like a like a brain dump flash of like all these things, right? Like it's so hard to pick yeah. one. <laughs> so hard to pick one. I think I have thought about this, and this is uh, probably not what people would expect. Um, so when I think of hunt favorite hunting memory obviously i could think of like an animal i've killed and that's valid but i think the coolest day i've ever had hunting was the first day of our caribou trip the first full day Mm. um when we killed jason's bull when we killed tyler's bull and how all that went down um you know it's one of those things where like for many reasons and i've thought about this so this might take a minute but let's just get into it and i'll tell you why it's my favorite number one you know we we all fly up to alaska it was kind of a mess we didn't get to fly out on time um we flew out late and then when we flew out late they couldn't take all of us uh you steve um and lenny volunteered to stay back and i understand why you did it and i'm thankful for it but still like to me that's like such a selfless thing so you and lenny had been on a caribou hunt before Nobody else had. And so you're like, you know, Lenny, I've done this. You guys go get in the field. We'll meet you out there. So number one, that was like just super cool and selfless. And I'm not saying that just about you, but like I always appreciate hunting with guys who are selfless. Um, so the first full day we got to hunt after we flew the night prior, we, you know, we ended up getting in a situation where um, we had Jason's bull. And I was right there. Jason and I both had bulls in our scopes, fingers on the trigger. Um, Jason ended up shooting his. It was awesome the way all that went down. Literally, you guys get to show up. You flew in after we killed it. You get to show up to pack it out. Uh, guys who heard the story from the prior podcast, we end up spotting some other bulls like way across the way. Tyler, uh, Jared, Justin, and I take off and then... Steve, that whole story of like hearing this after the fact about you and Glenny being like, there's no sense of urgency, you know, as you guys are watching <laughs> us cross this uh, wide open Alaskan tundra. So like, again, that whole story you can hear on the podcast from this, but like even that whole hearing that story later was just so freaking funny. Um, and then, you know, making those jokes, jokes about as we headed out, the four of us to go pursue these other bulls, you know, Tyler had a bow. Uh, Jared and I each had rifles and so we were kind of saying it was Tyler and the backup boys um, because Jared and I had told Tyler you know 
any sort of opportunity that looks like we can either get you into bow range or something's going to come into bow range, like we're going to wait. We want you to have like the first chance Tyler with a bow and we'll sit back and be disciplined with our triggers, um, with the rifles and end up, that's how it played out. So, you know, we get into the situation where I could have shot the bull that Tyler ended up shooting, uh, but it was working his way. And, you know, I just let that happen. And, even how that went down. I mean, I literally at one point, the caribou was like between me and Tyler and I'm looking at Tyler over the caribou's back. I see Tyler like at full draw and his bow is like pointed at me and the caribou. And so it was just one of those like crazy situations um, where it's just like, I'm in the middle of Alaska. We've already killed a bull this morning. I've already had, you know, that bull in my scope. And then now here I am looking at this other amazing bull Tyler's at full draw, like just the way that whole thing went down. He ended up shooting it. It goes down in sight, like skylined. It was just, it was amazing. Um, and then that pack out like was truly terrible um, on Tyler's bowl. And it was, you know, getting back well after dark. And we had all these other jokes about getting lost and, you know, going through all the swamps and the, the hairy balls uh, of Alaska with that heavy <laughs> pack out. And then to get back and have the Northern lights. I mean, that was just such a cool day, man. Um, just yeah, everything about it. Was. Like I didn't pull the trigger, but literally had, you know, two awesome bulls in my scope and, got to be part of the camaraderie of, you know, killing two bulls and packing out that bull and the Northern Lights and, you know, kind of a terrible pack out, which are always uh, cool and memorable in a way when they're over. And, you know, I think that was like, you know, my first trip to Alaska even, right? And then that's the first full hunting day and capped by the Northern Lights. Like, it just don't, like, it doesn't get cooler than that, man. Yeah, that's cool. That, yeah, that when you guys left to go across this flat, and uh speaking of the no sense of urgency thing like it was such a it's you can't even describe how it looked like there's just there wasn't a single tree right it's just nothing there's a little creek bottom with some bushes down there um and then just nothing but the the grass tundra stuff um and it looks like it's you know three quarters of a mile away and if i remember right i think if we later pulled it up on onyx and and uh, I, had, I think I was had Tyler and Lenny guests. I'm like, how far is that across there? And they're both like three quarters of a mile, seven eighths of a mile. You know, it was like two miles across that two team. miles. Yep. Yeah. I mean, it, it just doesn't. It was the most deceptive thing I've ever looked at um, when you're just sitting there with your eye going, yeah, I could I could hike over there and be there in, you know, 30 minutes. And here it was Waiters like on an hour. Five times. Yeah. An hour later, you guys are still like in the middle of it. We're like, what the hell is going on? <laughs> A little uh, bit, did we know? Like, obviously, when, when you killed your bull later in the trip, and you and I were, gosh, we we're eight or nine miles from yeah. the camp. Um, that was a lot of work. Yeah. Uh, and then, yeah, that uh, that Northern Lights. I was just talking about um, telling that story with, I think, my nieces. Um, they're up in college right now. We're, uh, I don't know how it came up, but I was just telling them it's probably the one of the coolest things I've ever seen with my eyes. And, you know, um, that was such an incredible sight. So, yeah. That's yeah, awesome, I just man. think, yeah. yeah, it's obviously not a, you know, like I can think of other awesome hunts, my personal hunts. Um, but like if I were to, like if somebody say you could only go relive one day or like you could only have one day in the field to do over again, like it would be that day for sure. Yeah. Yeah. It was neat. Mm. So I just looked it up. I think 
It's episodes 197 and 198 um, where we recapped that caribou hunt and kind of talked about it after the fact and I think told the story, lessons learned, all that good stuff. So <laughs> if guys have no idea what the heck I'm talking about, go listen to those two episodes. Yeah, that's cool. I got flipping on you now, Steve. You got to pick one. <laughs> yeah, I think I was. I got to think about this because I knew I was going to ask you the question. Um, I, probably for me, I mean, there are tons of just amazing hunts. I mean, that that sheep hunt I got to do with Tyler Bosch my last August was an incredible experience. Our trip to Kodiak uh, two years ago was an incredible experience. Um, obviously, I had some really amazing memorable hunts at home. Uh, the one that kind of stood out the most is our Lenny and I's awesome horrible Alaskan adventure on our, <laughs> our first trip up from moose. Um, and it's kind of the, it follows that similar line of uh, a death hike. Like it was so sucky and challenging. And at the time you wanted nothing to do with it. You wanted to be home or, you know, out of this crap hole. Um, but in hindsight, we learned so many lessons, um, and, and kind of persevered through it, right? Like we're able to end up in the end, killing two moose, um, even killing moose, you know, we, we shot them 30 minutes apart. They both died floating in water. Mine was in about thigh deep water, if I remember right. And Lenny's literally like swam out into the middle of the lake and died. Um, so there's just so many challenges that we were presented with on that hunt and, you know, to kind of come out of it successful. Um, it's kind of like, uh, gosh, we were, I was just at a party, um, Friday night with, uh, with some guys, a uh, m- bunch of guys that do the death hike. And um, one of them, Dione in particular, he's been on the podcast before, was talking about how much he's learned from the death hike on on how far he can push his body and, and what his body's you know really just capable of doing. That um, that that hunt was a good example of like just you know what you can kind of endure and um, you know just basically suffer through because that's what that hunt was. It was absolutely miserable in every aspect of of rain and and just probably on average knee deep in water our camp was literally in water like you would go over the tops of your shoes like we, we had where we the driest place we could put our our camp chairs was about three inches of water uh the tent thank goodness we had a good quality hilleberg because where the tent was it was just kind of this grass that you know it's basically like floating grass and it, it appeared dry but after like day two you kind of looked realized that there's water standing in the bottom of the tent and the only way we were able to keep dry is luckily um, they had supplied cots for us um so just every aspect of that hunt uh sucked but in the end you know we killed two moose got them home and really it wasn't uh you know just learned a lot from it and, and yeah. learned uh one thing I definitely learned is how spoiled we are here in the lower 48 to, to really be able to drive and control your own timeline. You know, going up to Alaska, you're really just at the mercy of the pilots and, and the air service getting in and out of the field. And patience is, you know, something that I just struggle with in my personal life um, that you just have to have, you know, tons of amount of patience up there and, and, and just be kind of mentally tough when it, when it pours rain for three days and you can't get outside your tent. Um, you know, that that's not an easy thing to do, especially if you've never done it before. Um, so yeah, just, just fighting all those kind of obstacles. Um, it was one of those, a lot of lessons learned and just came out of it. A, you know, not only a better hunter, but I think a better person. Yeah, for sure. I said, though, on mine, like, if there's one day I'd have in the field again, it'd be that day. I don't think you'd pick the moose hunt for that. 
<laughs> no, no, like, give me, no, okay, give me just I, I, one more one day, day in the field to repeat and be like, yeah, I just uh, want to be stuck in this you know, uh, nasty swamp. I do out of like vengeance want to go back with the proper gear this time. Um, yeah. You know, and knowing what you're getting into, um, you know, you could plan for it and, and get your really get your head wrapped around how bad it's going to suck and go back there and, and kill big old bull moose. Um, part of me wants to do that, but also part of me knows just like it sucked. That was, that yeah. was not, I mean, like I said, the, the best way I described that hunt was, was duck hunting for moose. If, if you're an avid <laughs> duck hunter and you just understanding, just being in marshy knee deep stuff, nonstop, that was us. And we did it for 14 days on a moose hunt. So yeah. knowing that there's other ways to kill moose in Alaska, I'd just say we just planned a different yeah. hunt. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the, yeah, I think the gosh, that sparked that memory of. It, that, that's the first trip to Alaska and you have this mm-hmm. grand expectations of being in this beautiful country and surrounded by animals. And you're going to be seeing grizzly bears and mountains in the distance. And we were in a swamp, man. Like you, you, you were, I think the, the GPS read elevation, like 12 on the low point to elevation 16 when we stood on a mound uh, and, the, and the, so a four feet change there. And then uh, the, the brush, the alder brush, whatever it is, there was, you know, 15 feet tall. Um, and you just never, it was kind of claustrophobic because you can never climb anything, have a vantage point. Um, it really, that was a challenge in itself being just like Western bow hunters uh, you know, always like getting elevation, getting vantage points, using our glass, having strategies. Um, I think I've said in the past, and probably in that podcast, like I think a whitetail hunter would have fared way better um, just because they're kind of more used to that. Um, really, you know, you kind of just got to sit trails, uh, find where, the, where there's moose sign and then just sit and wait. And that was, you know, that's not something that uh, was in my bones, right? Like, I just want to hike and move and and you know get out there and, and find the animal myself and mm-hmm. it just uh is not the correct strategy there because you could you know literally hike uh um you know you just hike yourself into the ground and only move half a mile i mean it was just absolutely yeah. slow slow going hmm. yeah that's cool yeah I, uh one of the things we've been working on like behind the scenes is i was just kind of like brainstorming and planning some content for this coming year um to put out through both the podcast and articles and things like that on the exo site and one one idea basically an article popped an article title popped in my head i was like oh that'd be fun to write and uh the idea was just uh hunting alaska is it worth the cost and does it live up to the hype Mm. you know and it's it basically want to talk about like in the end, yes, to both of those. Like hunting yeah. Alaska is worth it, but you also have to be prepared to like. Everybody has that vision of what it's going to be like to hunt Alaska, and it's pristine and big and wild and all that's true. But depending on where you're going, what you're hunting, how it's done, like you said, Steve, like you're going into that hunt is your first Alaska hunt, and then you just got your world rocked, right? Right. Yeah. And exactly. at the end of the day, it's it was still worth it. Um, you know, and like any experience you can get up there not that there's not gonna be hard times but just like that hunts like a perfect lesson it's like yeah parts of it were just flat out miserable so is alaska worth it yes can it be miserable yes you know like it's it's not like perfect and it's not going to be the dream you have in your mind but it's still going to be worth like making a plan and getting up there in some extent for sure yeah yeah i would like you said getting our world rock like i um refer back to that as 
um, cuss word coming. Like we were whiny little bitches, uh, <laughs> like going into that hunt, right? Like, yeah. um, like I really like come from that perspective because because being and not that not willing to work hard and hunt hard, um, but just not being in control. You know, like I yeah. think after like halfway through the trip, they had they had told us like, hey, if you're not seeing moose, let us know. We'll see if we can come get you and get you moved. And you know, we're like day four or five and i think we'd only seen like one cow moose or it was well, i can't remember the exact numbers but we're like there, there aren't any freaking moose here what's going on like come get us you know and, and then uh, they they weren't replying on the on the messages we're like, oh, you know it's like 24 hours go by and we're not getting any message so you start just getting really pissed off at the at the air service and then finally they get back to you and oh sorry we can't get you maybe tomorrow and that continued for like a couple days um, we're just like one response every 24 hours. So we're just getting really, you know, just whiny and pissy at, at yeah. this air service and reality. We should have just been, you know, in hindsight, right. Knowing what Alaska is and, and they were, you know, they're an air, air service that frankly just booked way too many hunters and, and you have a couple disruptions, uh, in the chain there and, and everything domino effects. And they just, you know, there's, they got people who've already been successful, got moose meat out in the field that they're not getting for a couple of days. And, um, that's, you know, I guess one thing, a really good question to ask, um, if you're ever booking through any type of air transport service up there is basically how booked are they? Like, do they have capacity? Like ask those questions up and up in advance and hopefully you get a straight answer because, uh, if they're just, you know, basically a, a cattle service, just running people in and out of the field, nonstop, trying to get as many hunters out there as possible. Um, inevitably you're going to spend, uh, extra days in the front or back into your trip waiting to, to get out or get picked up. Yeah. Yeah. Man, you got me all off target, Steve. That was yeah. fun. All right. Back to your stories. questions. Back to the, back <laughs> to the listener questions. All right. So, uh, this one just came in this week actually, and it was timely. I thought it'd be worth hitting. This guy says, I'm currently running the spot hog fast Eddie bow site, but I'm getting a new bow for 2021. And he said another bow. So I think he's setting up a completely separate bow. And he's considering the new Black Gold Hunter Pro from SNS Archery as his next bow site. Any suggestions, comparisons between those two sites, and/or what would you personally do? And I'm throwing this at you, Steve, because yeah. I've I've honestly never um, I've used them and all that. I've never shot a spot hog on a personal bow. Mm-hmm. It's just like hasn't been my preference. I've run Black Gold a ton and a bunch of others, but never a spot hog. But I know you have experience with all of them. Yeah. Uh, well, first, thanks for looking at buying from, from SNS Archery. Appreciate that. Um, the Spot Hog to me builds the nicest quality archery site you can get. Um, you know, they've always been for the almost all their site models have second and third axis adjustments. Uh, they've had great, some people don't like them, but for the most part, I think their pin adjustments, how you adjust the individual pins is a is a fantastic way to do it um uh, and it's just really well built really good quality sites um when they i think what they a mistake they made is when they they took that same like built like a tank approach into building their slider sites and they're just bulky heavy sites they don't have any issues um they're really you know truly built like a tank but in order to build a site that's a slider site and it's got all these moving components um you know you you just it's going to get bulky and heavy and and that that's kind of my complaint with not with spot hog sites in general they're like they're hunter hog it 
to me is probably one of the best fixed pin sights you could put on your bow. Um, their slider sights, Boss Hog, Tommy Hog, uh, Fast Eddie, I think they're just kind of overbuilt, overcomplicated for what they need to do. Um, so that's where Black Gold comes in. Black Gold builds a fantastic sight. Um, they don't look nearly as pretty as a Spot Hog. Um, I can tell you from, oh man, 10 years of selling both uh, S or both uh, um, Black Gold and Spot Hog sites through SNS, warranty differences are basically even. I mean, um, we it's pretty rare that we have issues with either company. And when we do, uh, both companies stand behind them, stand behind their products and take care of it pretty, pretty easily. It's one thing that that I've kind of uh, over the years learned to focus on with, with SNS Archery is the companies that we do sell their products. Um, we just find good companies to work with because there's there may be some companies that come out with a cool product, but the back end of their company is miserable to work with, whether it's just a, a bad employee who's not responsive or just a, a company like that's just disorganized. Um, I could think of a handful of ones we've dropped over the years that I guess I won't name, but um Basically, yeah, for us, if if you see it on our site, know that not only the product is is good, but also that the companies behind them, uh, you know, are stand-up companies and take care of their stuff. So um, going back to, to Black Gold there, their slider sites to me are the perfect hunting slider site. Uh, they're precise, they're durable, and, uh, and really the key features to me are simple and lightweight. Um, you've got all the adjustments that you need, none that you don't. Um, so if, yeah, if you're looking for that slider site, uh, I think, you know, you will be really happy with that black gold. Um, you know, a lot of people, like I said, they just don't look as pretty and as refined as a spot hog, but from a, like, uh, the nuts and bolts of it, the, the base construction, they're really well built. So you're not going to go wrong with either. Um, if you want a simple slider site, go black gold. Uh, if you want just absolutely built like a tank and you don't care about weight, uh, then I think you're kind of opens you up to more to look at the spot hog. Yeah. Have you looked at Steve, what are the changes for like 2021 with the black golds? Cause I, I have their, um, their um, hunter pro, but it's from, you know, a couple yeah, of years you know, ago. To be honest. Um, not a lot. Uh, Rob, um, if you ever contact SNS archery, Rob's going to be the one who, um, uh, he's been working for me for quite a few years. He runs basically the, the company. Um, you know, he, he'd be the one who answers the phone or answers an email. Um, and he just, he just showed me the other day, the, um, the new one and, um, they, they've continued, not much has changed, frankly, in 10 years. Um, the core of it, they've refined just little parts here and there, but you know, I wouldn't, uh, a 10 year old use black gold versus a brand new one, frankly. Um, there's not gonna be a lot of differences. Uh, mm-hmm. just, you know, they've, they've chipped away at getting them to look more refined and clean. They have a new base out this year that looks pretty cool. Just super light. Uh, if I remember right. Um, and then we always do kind of an SNS archery edition that we call it. So I think we call it the, yeah, just the, the SNS, uh, edition and it's, um, a five pin with how I set mine up with two greens, yellow in the middle, and then two greens below it. Um, super easy way to identify. I always know that for me, yellow is 50. Um, it's like a really like when heat of the moment, quick reference thing versus if you just kind of go green, red, yellow, green, red, yellow, it's, it's kind of easy to jumble those up. Um, but yes, yeah, so we do, uh, that SNS edition black gold, uh, like that. And it's always, um, it's the simpler one. We take out the micro adjust and things like that. So to me, 
if I was on the phone with a guy and he's like, Hey, do I want micro adjust or not? My question goes to, well, are you someone who's constantly messing with your bow and tinkering with it? Or do you prefer to get everything dialed in in February, March, and then just shoot that all summer long? Uh, so if that's the case, um, and you really kind of got to go through that sight in process, maybe just once with say the individual pins, then I would go non micro adjust. It's just less moving parts, less things to rattle, make noise, uh, just simpler is better when we're out there hunting. So we always do that SNS edition, kind of the, a stripped down version of their premium site, which for us is, is better because it's simple. Yeah. Getting off on all kinds of rabbit trails, but you saying, if a guy calls you and asks you the question, just made me have like this flashback of the first time I ever spoke to you steve was because i called sns archery with a bow site question <laughs> before we ever met <laughs> it's like oh that's weird that we're here yeah, now yeah that's many years later <laughs> uh, man we're i started sns when i was 24 so 12 years ago the first couple of years was just a, a you know working on bows in my garage as a part-time gig but yeah yeah i think the websites uh, i think last year was the 10 year um kind of anniversary of the website so it's cool yeah the other thing uh I'm always trying to like anticipate questions because we'll, we'll we'll mention stuff in passing and I can like see the emails coming in of like, you guys said this, why? Or, you know, like expound on that. You said green, green, yellow, green, green for your site setup. Mm -hmm. And then you said yellow's 50. And I can just Uh, imagine a lot of guys are like, wait, wouldn't that be 40? 40. Yeah. So (laughs) elaborate. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think it has been 10 years ago, but to me, I got, uh, got to the point where like my 20 and 30 pins um, were so tight together uh, that I was just like, man, this is silly. So I kind of um, messed with it a little bit. And at the same time I was trying, you know, I was shooting a lot and shooting further distances than I had in the past. Um, And so to kind of maximize having a pin for a further distance, I was like, uh, I can combine my 20 and 30 into one pin. And I found that 27 yards uh, was the perfect spot for me. Um, and then I think it basically put me an inch high at 30 and an inch low or, uh, an inch high at 20 inch low at 30. Um, and then I also found that, uh, at the same time I was doing a lot of 3d shoots. Uh, (laughs) one of the reasons I wanted to start the Northwest mountain challenge was I go to these 3d shoots and it's like 90% of the targets are between 20 and 35 yards. So it really simplified going to a 3d shoot, uh, to where I just had one pin and I just held either high 10 ring or low 10 ring, you know, and it, it almost didn't have to do a yardage estimate of, is that, you know, 21 yards or 29 yards? It was just like, yeah, clearly that's my top pin. I think it's closer to 30. I'm just going to hold a little high. Um, and yeah, so that those kind of factors together just had me go down that and I've just stuck with it ever since. So I just, I basically go uh, a 27 yard pin and then a 40 and then 50 is my yellow and then a 60 and a 70. Cool. Let's uh beginner question. This one came in and I, I love these questions. I, I know I mentioned in a somewhat recent Monday minute, like there's certain things out there that we just gloss over, maybe mention in passing. And um, I just love the fact that there's new people listening to this and people who aren't afraid to ask like, you know, basic questions. Cause we've, all been there myself included for sure so very beginner question steve this guy says what do you mean by thermals how do you know what they're doing how can they benefit or hinder your hunt so essentially what are thermals um yeah i'll just like hit the super high level stuff and then steve fill in the gaps but essentially thermals are 
somewhat patternable movements of air. So they're not wind per se, but like air is going to tend to rise or fall. And that pattern is what a lot of times just hunters refer to as thermals. Um, and the typical pattern is as the sun comes up in the day and then the air begins to warm the, you know, everyone's probably heard the phrase hot air rises, right? Well, that's going to happen to an extent um, in terrain. Whereas the day warms, air warms, air has begun to begin to rise or to come uphill or up mountain. And that would be an uphill thermal. And then the opposite is true. You get to the end of the day, the air's cooling off, the sun's going down. Now the air being cool is going to drift downward, down mountain, downhill, what have you. So you can somewhat look at thermals on just that, like the kind of the daily pattern. And then you can also look at thermals even based off of not just grand terrain, like this mountainside, but like more micro terrain or even cover. Whereas you get mid morning, um, actually a perfect example, Steve, is when we were, uh, when we were hunting my bull, um, on our rifle hunt this past fall, we were kind of moving mountainside. We were below elk um because it was still early enough in the morning the sun was up but it was still early enough in the morning that in many places the thermals were either stable or kind of somewhat drifting down but over this process we were at that transition time mid-morning where if we were in the sun literally the thermals were going up and potentially carrying our scent up to the elk above us and we would literally like cross over this like more sunny open patch as we're side hilling and then get to like this little creek draw that was coming down the mountainside. And because that creek draw was both shaded and then also air tends to follow the kind of the water current, the water is going to cool the air around the creek. The thermals were then falling. So it's one of those situations in mid morning, especially you could say the same thing later in the evening where depending literally on where you're standing, sometimes like 20 yards apart, you could have thermals going up or thermals going down. Um, so that's like a very simple high level. What are they? What do they do? How can they benefit or hinder your hunt? It's obviously all about kind of containing your scent and not having your scent blow towards animals. You know, it's certain times of the day with certain fronts, they're going to be very dependable. Um, and then often, especially while elk hunting in September, it seems like, you know, things can be unpredictable. Um, and then aside from the actual thermal itself, you can get true wind currents where it's an actual wind that's not blowing because of warm air or cool air, but just because of wind, right? So wind and thermals are yes related, but not the same. Yeah. Um, correct me, Steve, fill in the gaps. No, you nailed it. Um, yeah, I mean, you basically, like I said, you've got your winds, so you're, that's your pressure system coming in. And that's um, basically the two things I pay attention to are what does the wind forecast say um right so prior prevailing to a hunt, winds. yeah prevailing winds yep. um so where they're predicting you know it's you know if you have a stable kind of wind pattern or a weather pattern coming in the wind's going to come from the same direction most part every day so say it's coming in from um the northwest uh, very common here in idaho comes in from the northwest blows southeast um I'll know that on the western side, say I got a ridge running north and south, I'll know on the western side, I'm going to have very good predictable winds. I know if I crest over that ridge and hunt 
on the east facing side of that slope and the winds coming out of the northwest that especially at the top end of that you know the top half of that mountain i'm gonna have terrible winds right they're gonna be just they, they hit the top of that mountain and they kind of just swirl over the top of it and they're gonna be all over the place um and then so i'm looking at that going into a hunt and then in a hunt obviously you just just know that thermals go down in the mornings, they go up uh, in the day and they go back down in the evenings. Um, and so use those two to approach my hunt. Um, really, this is going to sound funny, but for the last, I know all of 2020 and maybe I think most of 2019, I've stopped packing wind checker. Um, and I think it's, you know, some people probably think I'm crazy. Like, uh, for, for some reason, Corey Jacobson comes to mind. I've never hunted with him, but in talking with him and talking to other people, he's just constantly checking and monitoring the wind and, and you, you have to, you're never going to kill an elk with the wind at your back. You're not going to happen. Um, but at the same time, I've learned that, um, you're sure not going to kill that elk if you don't try. Right. I mean, I think it's different <laughs> if you've got, let's say I've got a 350 bull in a basin and that is the bull I want to kill. I'm going to approach that a lot differently, but if I'm just on a backpack hunt and I'm out there to like, if a spike comes in, I'm going to kill it. Or if a raghorn six point, or if a monster bull comes in, like whatever, you know, it's everything's fair game, which is typically how I hunt. Um, then I'm I'm just going to push my luck. Um, I'm going to be smart, right? Like I'm, I said, what I just talked about, like, okay, uh, there are elk in this basin or up on this bench. The wind's coming out of the northwest. It's midday. I'm going to loop around, come in from, you know, the downwind side of them, and I'm going to get right on their level and approach in that way. Uh, I'm not going to try to, like, approach it with clearly the wind at my back. But I think it's – in the past, it gets really frustrating. Like, your elk hunt's a good example. We, we kept pushing on even though the winds were up, down, up, down. Um, and the reason I'm pushing on now is just – as much as much as I paid attention to thermals, like you said, they can be all over the place. Like the bottom third of the mountain is sunny and it's going up and then you get up from there and they're going down. And I mean, anyone can and attest to this. If you're just packing an elk, uh, a wind checker in the elk woods is you're constantly checking it. And every time you do it, the wind's doing something different. Um, and it just becomes very, very frustrating. So again, I just kind of use this overarching kind of, macro look at all right where's the prevailing winds coming from what what should the thermals be doing right now and then i use and then i just hunt with that information instead of constantly checking it and oh thermals are coming down we need to we need to go down and they move 100 yards closer to the elk and the thermals are going up and then so you're like zigzagging and um i think uh yeah i just approach it with that macro perspective and uh it seems to work again i my approach would be different if it was like I've got this one animal to kill and I need to be very, very careful. So um, flip side of that, like an early, you know, late August, early September mule deer hunts. Um, I, I absolutely, the thermals uh, on those hot days, say it's, you know, it's 40 in the morning and it's going to heat up to like 65, 70 in the afternoon. Um, and, and, and really, especially on a South facing or West facing slope, you're going to get really strong thermals that kick up, you know, between one and three o'clock in the afternoon. So if I've got a buck spotted there, um, I spot them first thing in the morning, I'll just watch them all day knowing that about one o'clock in the afternoon, do I want to then be in position above that deer, but not any sooner than that. Right. Um, 
So I'll just watch until 11 till noon, you know, however long I think it's going to take me to kind of get into position. And can I get into position on the backside of the ridge and then pop over? I mean, there's obviously a lot of factors you're juggling there, but you're going to get really strong, really good thermals when you have that kind of that heat fluctuation, right? Like, I mean, thermals are hot air rising. And so the, the greater the temperature range, the hotter that air is compared to what it was that morning, you're going to get a stronger current coming up the mountain. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. That's, that's good on deer. And then you, you mentioned this with elk too, but just to like reiterate or like pull that out is try and get on their level, especially if it's that mid morning time frame and it's, I mean, the thermals, you know, maybe right now they're dropping, but it is starting to warm and they could start rising or maybe it's such situation where based on cover, some of it's rising, some of it's falling. If you're side hilling into elk from their levels or as close as you can to it, it could be rising or falling, but you're on their elevation. So you don't, you're not coming in straight from above. You're not coming in straight from below when the thermals can really wreak havoc, but kind of loop around and then try and be on their level. And that's going to benefit you in thermals as well as I think it's, you know, it's often easier to, you know, to either get into elk or to have them come into calls without making them or go up or downhill as well. So um, that's just something I've paid attention to in the past as well. Just yeah. get on and, their level. And that, uh, it wasn't the bull you killed. It was the one, you know, 30 minutes prior. I mean, that's exactly like we were down below them. The thermals were pushing down. We were kind of down in the trees and shady. And we thought we could just kind of like do a fish hook and come right up this little ridge to them. And, and we're like middle of that going, oh crap. All of a sudden we got this pocket of air coming up and oh son of a gun. And we look over to the right about 150 yards and there's little, you know, this little 10 inch Creek coming down this draw. And mm-hmm. we both looked at that and it's fully shaded and we know like, okay, if we kind of drop down and get over to that Creek, we're going to be, the thermals are definitely going down right there. So we yep. really just need to get lucky cover that hundred yards to get to that Creek. And then, then we knew we could, we climbed all the way up that Creek. We got slightly above uh, where they, we thought they were going to be. And then we side hilled back into them. Yep. Uh, and then unfortunately they were gone, but um, don't know if the wind got them, if they saw us or if, uh, I guess eventually we just saw their, their hoof tricks, hoof tracks, just walking away. So we think they just yeah, kind of continued feeding up the mountain and mm-hmm. it just happened to take us 45 minutes to get there and they were already gone. Yeah. Yeah. And exactly. What you said, like use that Creek to your advantage. If you're, if thermals are coming uphill and you have to gain ground, you have to go uphill, find that shady spot, find that Creek and use that. I mean, sometimes that Creek's not going to have those thermals coming downhill, but it can help cover up some noise that you're making, things like that. So um, just those little things like that can make a difference for sure. Cool, Steve. We had some more for today, but gosh, we already, we already chatted quite We're a bit. Long. So yeah. In, the, yeah, in the interest of keeping this Monday minute to, uh, I don't even know how many minutes at this point. We'll save some more <laughs> for later. Cool. Um, but yeah, listeners, as always, send us a question. Um, you can just send that to, e- you can email that to podcast at exomongear.com. Uh, and as always, yeah, thanks for tuning in. Thanks for the feedback. As you mentioned, Steve, those reviews and iTunes or other places you can share that would be helpful. Sharing the show with a friend, that'd be also helpful. But uh, yeah, we'll be back, uh, almost said on Wednesday, but that's it's tomorrow already since my schedule's all thrown mm-hmm. off and this is not a Monday minute. We'll have a full episode tomorrow. Uh, and again, you can contact us with your questions, comments, feedback. It's a podcast at exomountgear.com.